Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 57. I'm your host, Daniel Holzman, and today we have a great special guest. His name is John Nations, comedy juggler and man of the world. Before we get to John, let's thank our sponsors, starting with sponsor number one, Numero Uno, because they're international, the International Jugglers Association. Go to juggle.org to find out about this great group of jugglers and all the information you need about this year's festival, July 16th to the 22nd in Springfield, Massachusetts. Let me promote a couple of my projects. First, I have my new book called 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act. It's available at Amazon.com or by contacting me directly on Facebook or through my email, danjuggle at gmail.com. It's for jugglers and other variety artists. Of course, I have a couple of toys. First is the Ring Dama, available at ringdama.com, and also the Zing Dama, available at Amazon or at Walmart. All right, enough promotion, enough brouhaha. Let's get to the guest. He is John Nations. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, my very special guest, international comedy juggler, John Nations. Hi, John. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Where have I found you in the, in the world? Somewhere exotic, somewhere exciting? Where are you? Uh, well, I'm in a little state on the East Coast visiting my mom and dad in South Carolina right now. So the exotic uh, South Carolina. Is that, yeah. where you, is that where you were born and raised? Is that your hometown? I was occasionally raised here by an escalator or elevator. But in general, I think I only grew up once I realized there's a lot bigger world outside. But I was born in South Carolina. A part of my uh, youth I spent in Pennsylvania and a little bit in uh, North Carolina and a little bit in Florida. But this is the homestead where my family lives. So when I come to the States between jobs, I always visit my mom and dad here. And uh, I live in Germany now, so it's it feels exotic. It feels almost like I step into a crazy movie when I come here now. So you spend more time uh, in Europe and internationally than you do in the States now? Yeah, much more. I've been living in Germany for five years. Oh, interesting. Before we get to that, what, what was young John Nations like? Were you a... Uh... A guy into sports? Were you into uh, drama? Or, or what was your interest back then? Uh, well, as a kid, I was just a, a dreamer who believed that we would one day have flying cars and maybe even flying people. And uh, everybody would stop being mean to each other by the time I got grown up. And uh, I think I was very naive, very uh, trusting. I also had a lot of fear of the Cold War, uh, the, that it would, it would turn hot and we'd nuke each other. So I had that anxiety. But I think as a kid, what I liked doing was almost always something that could never make me a living. I was crazy about Lego, crazy about Star Wars, crazy about movies and how they made movies. At one point, I played baseball. And on that baseball team, I wasn't a good athlete at all. I just enjoyed the game of baseball in some degree. Uh, And uh, so I was an outfielder. We had too many. I was benched a lot. When I got to play, I, I sometimes was the hero that caught the amazing catch. And sometimes nothing ever came to me. So... But when when I was in the dugout, there were balls laying around and I learned to juggle three baseballs. Didn't even realize realize it was going to be juggling or it was called juggling. So I'm thankful for that time to guess three years of Little League Baseball that helped me sit around with a bunch of baseballs while having pretty much nothing to do except watch a game (laughs) because I ended up first juggling two in one hand, still not knowing it was juggling, you know, that's funny. So I'm, I'm, I never was a sports guy. Oh, yeah, my father showed me how to lift weights because I was naturally super skinny, really skinny. And um, my father was lifting weights with his friends and when he was younger. So 
when I came along and I wanted to try not to be so skinny anymore and I was interested in girls and hopefully they would notice me, then I, uh, I started lifting weights a bit and uh, that was good. So that was one of the, it was kind of a hobby and I also helped some of my friends get into it a little bit. I never knew the right truths about it, like proper food or the exact techniques to, to do proper bodybuilding. So what it did is it made me look a little bit like an athlete, but I never gained as much muscle as I hoped. I wanted to look, you know, like a superhero. Yeah, I always thought of you as an athlete. You always had an athletic build. Yeah, I appreciate that. See, that's the illusion you get from from lifting weights and keeping your tummy flat. You look like an athlete. <laughs> now, so it's funny. So you're saying you, you picked up juggling. Had you seen juggling before, even though you didn't know what it was called? No, I, I knew it was called juggling. If someone said juggling, but see, I was in South Carolina. Like I said, it's kind of a weird wasteland for so many things. Even now, there's almost no no presence of juggling in South Carolina. They have a few people who do what they call flow, mm-hmm. some ploy people and staff people, and you got some fire eaters, fire spitters, and even a couple of what do you call them, fakirs, like people who, yeah. you know, staple themselves or lie down on glass or nails, sure. but puncture their st- arms or tongues and things like that. Exactly, exactly. That's, yeah, and stick a nail deep in their sinus or whatever. I still am surprised with the great weather that South Carolina has, all except a few cold days or weeks in the winter and then brutally hot summer the rest of the time. All of spring, all of autumn are so perfect to juggle outdoors. Uh, And there are so many people who go out to the parks. I'm astounded that there's no little juggling club at all. But, But when I learned to do the three baseballs, what happened was, you may have heard of Sean Maury. Sure, the comedy juggler. Yeah. yeah. I was a kid. I saw Sean Maury. I knew how to do three baseballs, but I never thought about it as juggling. And then I saw him do his act where he had all these jokes with juggling patterns. It was funny. So I was very shy when I was a kid. I was, I was really nervous around girls, and I was always feeling inadequate around athletes. I never knew what to do with my hair. My hair was flat. It was like Dave Barry says. It came out of my head and grew straight towards the floor by, via the st- straightest route possible. So I never knew how to part it or comb it or anything. I always felt like this little nerdy guy with glasses. And then suddenly when I juggled, I got three tennis balls at school once. I juggled three of them and I copied a joke that I saw Sean Morey do. And uh, the kids were laughing and, and not laughing at me, but they thought the jokes were cool. And I said, you didn't see Sean Morey? He was on, on HBO or whatever. And no. <laughs> and I was okay. So the time I saw Sean Morey, he was doing a different set. And I tried and found that I could do I could do the tricks that he did. Like it wasn't too hard. It were just three balls, not very fast. He had, he had clawing. You know, he did the tax yeah. person thing, taking the taxes with the clawing. Sure, gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I did that one, and, and he did um, some one-up, two-up, and he did a neck catch. I didn't understand the neck catch at first, but using just a little bit of watching his video, I learned how to do a neck catch. And then the next time I saw people standing around waiting to do tennis or baseball, I don't remember where it was, I had a little more confidence. I did a couple of jokes and I had a couple of my own jokes because I, I have to say that another thing I've always loved is comedy, especially British humor. I grew up watching Monty Python and Benny Hill, the two Ronnies, and then later, not the nine o'clock news. I'm a huge fan of John Cleese, Eric Idle, uh, Rowan Atkinson, uh, Black Adder. And so I, I would put on a British accent if I dropped something and make, you know, oh, oh, bloody balls rolled under the table. Okay, show's over, folks. You know, like, <laughs> just try that. Right. And, and I noticed I was getting a lot of attention from people who never noticed me just by being silly. And when I got my contact lenses, it's a magic when you don't wear glasses anymore because then you're a person. You know, you're just a nerd, a punching bag, a, a bully's victim, a pick on person when you have glasses. But as soon as you get contacts and you're still you're working out a little bit and you, you look okay, I don't still don't know what to do with my hair. Then I did these jokes and these juggling and I became John the juggler right at the end of high school. 
oh, there's John the Juggler. And that was kind of a neat identity for me because remember, I, I I didn't like school. I like to leave, get to school as late as possible, leave school as early as possible. If I ever had a free period, I was off campus sneaking out. I just I just hated high school. But when I got to college, I actually picked my college because I didn't want to go to college. My parents said, we'll pay. You have to go. I was like, I don't want to. And then on the University of South Carolina campus, there was a guy there that was juggling. It turned out I tried to talk to the guy. He wasn't very friendly, but he had clubs. So suddenly I wanted clubs. I thought they looked magical. Think about this, though. Imagine all these jugglers now. They can watch a YouTube video when they're six or seven years old that shows a kid not much older than them doing seven objects, five clubs, whatever, and grow up thinking that it's perfectly normal to have access to juggling equipment to practice it like crazy, to be supported and encouraged, juggle around other people, and maybe even go for a world record or a WJF competition or an IJA festival or a European juggling convention by the time they've turned into a teenager. <laughs> right. One guy I spoke to, Ivan Dragsha from Norway, last uh, EJC I stopped in, it was uh, the Almera one, which is uh, the Netherlands 2016. I was on a bus going from the site downtown for the parade. And there was a really good looking young guy from Norway. I doubt he was even all the way uh, uh, grown up yet. He's probably a teenager. 18. Yeah. But I asked him if he does clubs. He said, yeah. I said, are you John Nations? I was like, yeah. Oh, you know me. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, cool. Have you heard of me? I said, "Uh, do you do any six clubs? And he goes, oh, yeah, I do a lot of six clubs. I didn't realize I was talking to Ivan, who works on eight and nine clubs solo. (laughs) So this guy, he told me that when he was 12 years old, or 13 years old, when when he first did a six-club solo flash. And that's when I realized, wow, it's it's a miracle that I ever got into juggling and took it seriously. Because a lot of these people, you say you had Gina on, she's brilliant. She grew up in circus. So yeah. there were always people either around guys like Ivan or, or ladies like Gina who encouraged them, taught them, set an example. They're role models in juggling. And here I was in this state that not only back when I was a kid, But even now, South Carolina is still, it's a long way between the jugglers of Charlotte, Davidson, Atlanta, and South Carolina, (laughs) between those groups. The only way I know is uh, Steve Langley. He's in North Carolina, though, Steve. Exactly. He's really close to Charlotte. And Steve, when I uh, worked at a theme park many years ago, I worked at Carowinds. It was my first paid juggling job. And I was really excited to get it. And uh, they had a jugglers meeting on noons in the park in Charlotte. And so Steve Langley, he was, I met him there at this juggling. He had really long hair. He would go down and juggle and people would come out. He was really smooth. You know, he was like you really, really smooth with his juggling. And he was pretty good with the devil stick. I remember that he was a great devil sticker. And also he liked to crack jokes and he liked, he knew a lot of great jugglers. He would go to juggling conventions. One of the guys I met while I was at University of South Carolina uh, was named Jim. He wasn't a student anymore. He was from computer guy and he'd come to the campus and juggle and he was finally willing to show me some things he taught me how to pass and then when i got to uh, that job at carowinds steve langley was around and he was doing professional shows and that encouraged me too and i was doing my job at carowinds so i i was realizing there is a way to get paid to juggle but all along i was being told you got to finish college this was a summer job for me you got to finish college go finish college what were you, what were you studying in college I didn't want to study anything. I wanted to practice juggling <laughs> weights and ride my bike, but I actually got a degree. I loved French, the language, and my teachers were really nice, so I decided to get a degree in French. And then my psych teacher said, you have enough credits in psychology, you could get a degree in psychology. So I got a double major, French and psychology, 
which means I'm supposed to psychoanalyze French people. And they need it because, you know, any country that invents that many kinds of cheese and complains that you don't know what wine is, they definitely need a psychologist. But by that time, I got out of college and I just wanted to stop with school, stop with the papers, stop with the tests, the exams, the pressure, and especially stop getting up early. People ask me why I got into entertainment for a living. I think the number one reason is in most cases, you never have to get up early. You know, this podcast we're doing, you said, what can, time can you do the podcast? I'm on the East Coast, West Coast, you're on the East Coast. And you said, how about nine o'clock my time? And I thought, noon my time, well, that's too <laughs> early. So I changed 12.30. So I think maybe for me, ambition and drive and being really successful and having a lot of money and owning things and being a big shot was never interesting because it all sounded like it would mean you have to get up early. And I was never going to get up early. If I had to live outdoors in a tent for the rest of my life, I thought, I just cannot stand the idea. Of are, are you a late up. night guy? I mean, what time do you go to bed then? Well, if I go to bed and I feel good, it's between 1 and 2 okay. a.m. Right. And if I get up and I feel good, the problem is even if I went to bed 1 or 2 a.m. and I love sleeping 8 hours, I'll end up staying in bed till 10 and that, that's when I feel the best. So you know, 10, 11, if I, if I sleep between nine and 10 hours, for some reason, that seems to be the best. Or maybe I'm not even sleeping. Maybe half the time I'm lying there reading something. Right. I like to read a lot. You just like to be reclined. You like to recline. I like to recline. And I love to sleep. I, I feel like I don't really remember my dreams very much, but I feel like if I've had a dream that night, then I juggle better the next day. I'm more focused the next day. I, I can concentrate better. And I don't nod off when reading or sitting and I can be more focused and clear. If I need to drive a long way, I'm not sleepy in the car. So I feel like those, those hours of dream sleep are a big deal. And maybe sometimes I have trouble falling asleep at the beginning. So if you look at all the things about me, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't very interested in ambitious things. I love to sleep late. What was I gonna do for a living? I never really felt like I, like at my university, they had a computer science program and I was really into computers as a kid, but I didn't understand them. All I had was, you know, a little cheap one at home that couldn't really do anything, hooked up to the TV. Right. When I tried to use what I wanted to do, I loved video games. I was a fanatic about video games. And when I got to college, what I wanted to do is see if there was a way to de design video games, make things move around on the screen, you know, animate things, uh, Donkey Kong style. And it turns out the computer science department not only had no computers that did that kind of thing, but they frowned upon it. The head of the computer science department was actually my teacher for my first computer science class. And it, it was like, how can they take something as powerful and interesting as a computer, which can make video games and colored graphics and all this stuff and turn it into some boring thing where they want to make accounting programs or I don't know, math. <laughs> I just couldn't. So because the, the school wasn't set up really for people who love video games and video game designing, I think that helped push me towards juggling also. If they had had a really amazing, let's say, computer graphics, like I love Pixar. You know, I've been inside Pixar, a friend of mine that worked there. You might have heard of Michael Cass. I saw him last night. Yeah, he's a great guy. And, and I had asked anybody around, I asked Art Lubell if, if this was in 2002 or three, if he could possibly hook me up with anyone who would get me inside Pixar, because I'm such a Pixar fanatic, dating well back before um, they uh, split, uh, were bought by Disney. Arthur Lubell was nice enough to get me Michael Cass's number. I called him. He arranged passes, and I got in and met a guy named Lance Thornton. And Lance Thornton's in seriously into juggling. Have you ever met Lance? Lance, uh, he he runs the uh, Berkeley Juggling Festival. He's a really good dude. I just saw him last weekend at uh, the Palo Alto Juggling Festival. He's still juggling. 
Yeah, he actually helped me a lot. I was the MC in Palo Alto, and he actually was my right-hand man and stagehand, and we spent a lot of time together, and great guy. And we're talking about maybe putting on a festival in, in our neck of the woods uh, maybe later this year. Okay, well, you let me know because I want to see him again. I went to his wedding in 2005, and uh, really, really great guy. And he has the October the 23rd birthday, just like me. I think that's oh. kind of cool. He's also a big unicyclist, plays a lot of unicycle basketball. Really? Oh, okay. Wow. That looks like a way to hurt your shins. What do you think? Do you play unicycle sports? No, no. I, I barely ride the unicycle, and I, uh, I don't think I'd do well. I'm not like yourself. I'm not that athletic. I'm, uh, I'm a good juggler, but it's, when it comes to sports and shooting the ball and stuff, not my thing. Well, I like to shoot a basketball into a hoop from standing still, but I can't play the sport of basketball because first, big sweaty guys are always running into me and taking the ball. I hate that. And I can't dribble worth a crap. I mean, if I'm sleeping, I practice dribbling in my sleep, but that's a different kind of dribbling. So anyway, I just think the basketball going through the hoop is really fun challenge. That's probably the juggler in me wants to stand as far as possible and try to swish it through the hoop. I'm not good at it, but I like it. The game of it, I can't understand how anybody even plays it by just, excuse me, by just going around dribbling and running and keeping it from being stolen. So when you add a unicycle, wow. And I yeah. saw when I was a kid, I saw unicycle basketball at, at uh, Ringling Circus, and I thought, man, that's amazing. At that time, I couldn't even ride a unicycle. I'm fortunate my brother was a unicyclist when we were kids, and so he taught me how to ride. But like you, here's what I do with a unicycle. I need more time in my show, or I need to be up a little bit higher for the audience to see me. I get on the unicycle, I do a basic juggle, and then I do a cool finish, tell a few jokes, and I get off. <laughs> I don't have any tricks there. I, I just got scared when I got on the giraffe. It just felt so wonky that I just thought, this isn't for me. I, I'm not a guy who likes to be off the ground. Yeah, I mean, I wish I were athletic and could do backflips and all that cool juggle on somebody's shoulders or have someone on my shoulder, all that stuff. But yeah, because I'm not innately a, a physically competitive person, once I learned that I could just compete with myself, just try to improve my juggling, that's satisfying. I like balancing things, you know, balancing things on my head and uh, juggling at the same time, bouncing a ball on my head and juggling at the same time. And I love doing the head roll where you you know catch a ball on the side of your head or your ear and roll it to the other one, all that stuff. With all that to learn and master, I never really had the energy, time, or interest to be a you know super unicyclist or acrobat. I kind of regret it in a way. If people around me had been doing it or if I'd have had a place with spotters where I wouldn't get hurt. But as a juggler, we're all really careful with our hands, elbows, wrists. We don't want to sprain or hurt or break anything, you know, that – so I think maybe if you're on a tall unicycle just screwing around and you fall and you break your wrist and you have to give up six months of work, you're going to feel stupid. You know? So how'd you, how'd you get those first jobs? You say you got an amusement park gig. How'd you even get that? At my university, they came to campus and did a little audition. They would, they would let people fill out applications anytime for regular jobs. But for entertainment, they would have these auditions and you'd see a poster. Okay. So I went in with my stuff. I was so nervous. I hate auditions. I really hope I never have another one ever for the rest of my life. In fact, I'd like that time machine to go back and just take myself out of all the auditions <laughs> I ever did. The only audition I ever did that went well, I felt, was when I did one for Universal City Walk in Orlando, Florida. And they really liked me right away. They said, stop, stop, stop. We're going to hire you. <laughs> I was like, great. I didn't have to do it. I told them like three jokes, did like three tricks. Boom. They were happy. But um, I went this audition day on campus. There were these three people sitting there, a lady who smiled and clapped and liked everything. And then two serious looking guys. Is that the standard format? What do you think of auditions? Well, I think they they put you on the spot purposely because they want to know if you can handle the pressure as part of it, I would think. Do you ever find it's a bad cop, good cop type audition panel? 
I don't know, man. I haven't really done that many. I mean, it's been so long. I remember doing some for commercials. It doesn't seem to have that dynamic of sort of the friendly person and then the person who seems like they're, they couldn't care if you're there or not. Have you ever read or seen any of the Hunger Games movies or books? I read all the books and I saw the first couple of movies before I got too bored. Me too. Same here. And I thought the idea of making an allegory for the collapse of the United States was quite a cool idea that the lady wrote about. I think that was great. And I don't think she's a bad writer at all. But I just felt it is sort of a teen fiction, lots of drama with the romance and stuff. And I just felt whatever about the books. But when I saw them getting ready to go to the Hunger Games where they know that they're going to be killed, all of them except one is going to be killed. And there was the one lady who's kind of a liaison from the Capitol District who's all nice to them, even though she's kind of cheesy and smiles a lot, has her weird hair. You can see that she's kind of a humane person and tries to be nice to them. And I felt instantly when I saw that in the movie, when I saw it in the books, I instantly thought that's how auditions are. You feel like you're going to get killed and there's only right. one person in the whole group that's being really nice to you. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like I got to say it's been so long and I've done so, so few. Really jugglers, I mean, unless you're going out for commercials and stuff, I don't remember doing that many auditions, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you're lucky. I mean, we, we all grew up kind of watching you and Barry, and a lot of people copied you guys. I don't Have you ever tried to count how many people blatantly ripped you guys off in their, in their performances? Well, you know, I think what it is is that a lot of people said, oh, this person or that group is, is taking from you. But then you'd watch it and go, people don't really see the differences. They just see two guys juggling or passing. And then sometimes they're like, oh, hey, they did that thing where they passed around a guy in the middle. They're ripping you off. And you're like, you know, we can't really, we can't take credit for that. I'm sorry. I'm referring to when we used to all stand around. Everybody would stand around at the whole juggling convention. And everybody would try to do, now, Barry, do it like I showed you. You know, trying to sound like you, not not performing it, not doing it as a part of sure, a show. Sure. But everybody's seen the videos. Everybody, Barry Bacalor's huge video collection with you guys doing all those championships. And then you you were interviewed and you had the... As soon as you're performing, you have a voice that you deliberately made funny and everybody liked it and it really worked. Anybody doing that kind of thing or saying, you know, and now we'll do a flawless display of six club passing using five clubs, you know, like that, all that stuff. To me, there were way too many people ripping it off. And before you, there were way too many people ripping off Michael Davis. Right. Now, I know that comedy is derivative. It has to be. Even if it's just observational humor, you've got to have a common frame of reference with the audience before that comedy works. I have a lot of jokes about Harry Potter because I'm a Harry Potter fanatic. If I were to stand in my regular show and do my Harry Potter jokes, I'd get 2% response. And what if they ain't funny? Now zero, you know? So sure, you, have sure. have, you have to derive your comedy from either real life or a song or a poem or a movie or you might be – basing it on a gag that you saw in somebody else's show. But hopefully, if it's derivative and you're aware while you're doing it that it's derivative, you're deliberately changing it into being something of your own. My goal, if I ever derive any of my comedy from anybody else's work, it's designed to never make that person, if they're sitting on the front row and they've still, they've known that I've known about them, right? They'll never think that I'm using anything from them. That's my goal. If, if there's any, I'm always terrified to put a piece of comedy in that is too close to a piece of comedy that I've heard. Does that make any sense? 
Well, it's because you have integrity. That's sort of the Scotty Meltzer. I think he came up with the... Integrity is a Latin word meaning not that funny. (laughs) But there is like, I think he had a hierarchy of stealing, Scotty did, where, you know, the idea is that you want to be inspired. You you don't want to steal from somebody. You want them to be able to see what you do and not even recognize that they were the reason behind it for some... Well, you remember that bit when you guys, you said to Barry during the, the Shaker Cups routine, Apparently, one of us has been too busy to practice his cups. And then very good. <laughs> apparently, one of us has a life. Okay. I don't even remember that, but I, I'm sure it sounds like something we'd say. Yeah, that was such a genius thing to say. And you said it possibly on a, like a Johnny Carson show. You, know, you, guys, you guys were the, the, the tip-top jugglers in the world. And so uh, my partner and I, I don't have a partner juggler anymore, but we used to do an homage to you guys. And the goal was to bend that joke into a way that if you and Barry were right there, you wouldn't go, hey, mm. you took that from us. We wanted it to be something that you would laugh at. So here's what we did. <laughs> we we had one of us would do, we split the audience into two sides and we were trying to get each side of the audience to cheer louder than the other side because we were trying to fire up a crowd at a theme park. So yeah. we had an arena, we had wireless mics, headset microphones. So I do, okay, and now I'm gonna show you guys a trick. It's the spin with one. It was a 360 with one club up in the air, you know? So I throw the three six, throw the club, do the 360, and the audience would cheer. And then my partner would go the spin with one, and he'd throw it, and he'd do the 360, and the audience would cheer. Then I go uh, now a little harder, the spin with two, and I throw two clubs up in the air and do the 360. And he'd look at me and he'd go the spin with one. <laughs> <He'd>, <laughs> right. Come on, he'd really ham it up, and the audience would cheer like crazy. And I go okay, the spin with all three up, and I throw all three up and do the 360 and keep going with the three club cascade, right? And then I'd look at him expectantly, and he'd go the spin with one, right? And everybody. Would, would give him a bunch of cheer. And then I'd go, apparently one of us has been uh, neglecting practice a little bit. And he'd go, one of us has a social life, right? And everybody right. would laugh at me, right? So, and i go, that's that's a good point. And then later on when we were passing, I'd do all these tricks with passing. And, and i go, now come on, you gotta have a passing trick in there. He goes, well, I have been saving one up. I hope they like it. It's called the spin with one. And he'd do the spin with one. <laughs> nice callback. So we thought, okay, we know damn well that we've basically adapted a Barry and Dan joke in the show. And we always wished you guys would come and tell us, hey, you guys are ripping us off or, hey, that's good. You know, what do you think now that I've told it to you? Does it sound too much like a ripoff or was it OK? It sounds really funny, actually. I think there's one line that's pretty much the same as the joke exactly. about. But as far as what you've done with it, how you modified it to make it your own, that's that's what we do, right? We Exactly. There's only one act that I kind of went from homage to actual blatant thievery was also on cruise ships with a... a Benji Hill, I'll, I'll mention his name. Yeah, he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a material thief. Yeah, I actually, he actually paid me off one time. I actually uh, got him to pay me some money for the material he'd used in the past. He even told me once that he was ripping off people's material. I said, why are you doing that? He goes, because, man, this is a hard business. you got to take whatever material you can get. He goes, no, you don't. You can do what the rest of us do, stumble through and come up with your own bits. I have a lot of bits that are my signature bits. And I wouldn't want someone doing those same bits while I'm still performing. Now, one day, if I'm ever wealthy enough to retire... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but if, if I were ever able to retire and somebody said, hey, Johnny, can I use that bit now that you retire? I'd say, sure, sure. You know, the best thing would be if you'd tell people where you got it. I'd love to have the writer's credit. I fancy myself as kind of a, a writer who's never really written anything for public. Well, I got published in Juggler's World a couple of times, if that counts. Uh, I wrote a fire safety instructions book once. But in general, there's a couple of people that you, you feel that the minute you do your act in front of them, they're they're thinking, huh, and you could see the gears working, how they could copy the exact, how much would it take them? So that guy you mentioned, he he hasn't 
really always been that nice to people. And I know another guy, see this act that you were talking about, I was talking about with one guy doing the spin with one and the other guy, the spin with right. two. that was only at a theme park. I've never done anything that I would consider. Well, do you, have you ever heard of Greg Hosfeld? Yeah, the Frisbee player. Yeah, and he's a great juggler. He's gotten now into designing Frisbee golf courses, and he does that, they call it disc golf. Right. He's really successful with that, but he was also the um, disc uh, golf world champion in 1987. He, he's really amazing. He, he won a lot of titles with freestyle. And, and he was on Letterman, right? He did the, the superhuman yeah, tricks. With the little mini Frisbee. Yeah, keeping it aloft with blowing it with his mouth, I remember, just keeping yeah. it. If the slow motion replay, it passes right over where the on-air sign is right behind him, so mm. under between... Him and the Frisbee is on air. I love that. Well, Greg was another one of my huge inspirations coming along. And in my street show, I used to use a joke from him. So I said, hey, Greg, I want to use this joke in my street show. Can I use it? And I was working in Norway as a street juggler. Because all my material that I developed on my own was on streets. You know, I always wanted to have a cushy, steady gig. But I always missed them somehow. I always screwed up and missed them or wasn't around. So I would just take whatever freelance gigs I could get. Mostly walk around at corporate or theme park, fill in short contracts, this 4th of July. But my regular bread and butter for many years until I started doing ships was street performance. And it helped me build a lot of material. But the joke that got the biggest laugh was Greg Hosfeld's. And I told him I was using it. He goes, that's fine. And then when I got ships, I went to Greg and I said, hey, Greg, I'm going to be doing ships now. Is it OK if I use this joke? And he goes, I don't want you using that joke on ships. So the joke's gone from the show. I took it out. Because I just couldn't stand the idea that somebody would think that my show was using some material without permission. Well, I mean, part of it has to be that, you know, you're, you're in a creative field. I think, like we talked about the other act, which I won't mention his name again. The idea is, yeah, if you look at every act out there and say, I'm going to take a, the best bit or a bit from every act. I'll take something from Michael Davis, something from the Raspinis, something from Frankie Olivier, whatever. You could cobble together a pretty strong act yep. if, if you have the juggling skills without any real creativity. And that's, that's the approach that I think he chose to take, that business trumped personal creative achievement. Well, the sad part is when he first started out, when he first started out, he, he told me this story when I met him many, many years ago. I and mean, I thought he was a super juggler, but it just he never had many people skills. So I stopped trying to befriend him because he's from North Carolina. I'm from South Carolina. We'd be at the same festivals. But what he told me the first time I ever spoke to him about his amazing technical juggling, I said, you know, that, that bounce ball routine and the four ball shoulder throws and stuff. That looks a lot like Dick Franco. And he said, uh, it is. It's his routine. And I just adapted it a little bit. But uh, I said, so how did you get it? I mean, there's not a lot of video of it around. I only saw it recently. He said, I met Dick and asked him to teach me. And he taught me that routine. I said, oh, wow. And he goes, and he told me not to use it in competition. I said, so you didn't use it in competition? He goes, no, I did. I'm like, but he told you not to. He goes, yeah, but you know, you got to make a living, man. Jeez. He cranked the first guy that, that helped him. You know, The guy said, you can use the routine, just don't use it in competition. And he used it in competition. And that right there was the first time I realized, if I have to live outside in a tent and I never have a single bit of money, I am not going to be that guy. I'm going to create my own type of show. And I still get all the time people telling me, why don't you do this bit? I've seen this bit. I'm like, no, it's not my bit. Or they'll say, you could be funnier if you just get a joke book. And it's like, no, I want it to be my stuff. I, if, if, if I can't entertain people from John Nations, whether it's clumsiness, because I've worked my clumsiness in the show because I'm naturally clumsy, whether it's being a little bit forgetful and laughing at myself, I think I'm much more likely to end up an entertainer who barely juggles and who just talks than I am a great creative. Wes Peden, what a brilliant juggler. What a free, what Jay Gilligan, what a genius. Yeah. And their little protege, Tony Pezzo, is now just as creative on his own. 
all over there in that Swedish school, Sjökur, in Stockholm. And you have Emil Dahl and uh, Toby Walker. I think Toby Walker may be one of the most creative jugglers I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever created a single move in juggling. I wish I had. I wish that was my talent. It's not. If I have talents, they are being silly and getting people to laugh with me or at me. (laughs) Covering drops. I think covering drops is one of my... I always joked that if I had been born in the time of the knights, my name, if I got a knight at knighthood, would be Sir Drops a lot, the juggler. And the other talent I think I have is making juggling relatable, teaching three balls with humor and making people comfortable, even if they don't get the three balls, even if I just teach them a really nice way to juggle two balls or or even balance a club on their head or on the back of their hand or something like that. We have fun with it. I think making juggling into a vehicle for a personality is a talent of mine. But it all comes down to, I like talking to strangers. I like getting up and making a fool of myself in front of strangers. And even though I don't wear clown shoes or clown makeup, my act is based on being a bit silly and having fun with people and knowing that I can neither be the technical superstar with seven objects. I'm still trying to learn seven objects. I've been trying to learn seven objects since I learned six and I learned six in the (laughs) nineties, but also I'd never be the guy who can create a move like those amazing things Jay creates. It's amazing too because they create thousands of tricks like Wes, Pete, and Jay. The wealth of material those guys have created. And like you say, some jugglers don't create a single move. That's me. I'd love to say I've created a bunch of moves. I think I've created a couple of cool transitions between moves. Now, I have created a couple of cool ways to talk in a silly way or an educational way or an amusing way, I hope, an engaging, let's say an engaging way about juggling. But that's not juggling, that's talking. You notice that Wes and Jay and those guys, they'll have a show that's all new, wild things. Six months to a year later, they've got another one and all the stuff in it, or at least half the stuff in it, is new moves. How do they do that? It's... I'm impressed by those guys. Well, it's a different focus. I mean, some people, like I say, their focus is in the exploration of juggling potential. Like, where can this art form go? And how can I explore the different possibilities of, of these objects? And other people are more into the commercialization of it, but also the utilization of their own personal strengths. I mean, you're saying that you found your way through silliness, through covering other drops. And we've talked about this before, though, that you sort of consider yourself a nervous juggler. That you did would, would drop more than you like. Well, even when I have no nervousness at all, like if I'm somewhere where there's a baby crying and uh, I'll bring out three balls and the baby immediately stops crying and just sniffles a little and the parents are so happy and I start juggling a little bit and the baby's happy and I let one, the baby hold one ball because I like to get baby snot and, and germs smeared all over okay, right. my props. And then I take another ball out and I juggle and then I do four balls. When I'm juggling and then I notice there's a couple other people watching wherever it is. It might be the, the queue of a fast food place. It might be the waiting lounge of an airport or train station. It might be outside while waiting, get in somewhere or the ticket queue to a movie cinema. I don't know. Every, I'll always have, if I have a backpack with me, I always have my practice balls in there, right? If I show those people anything, I feel no nervousness at all, but I always screw something up. I'll either miss on five balls or I'll try a head roll and I'll throw the ball up and it'll fall off my head. I'm just a naturally clumsy person. So even when I'm not nervous, even when <laughs> I've got the show completely down, right? Now, in the show I do on ships, there are a couple of times I'm nervous. I'm nervous before I go on stage, and I've talked to every act. And the ones that I feel are regular humans and not robots, because there are robots, <laughs> the regular, right. they say, if you're not nervous before you go on, you're dead. So I'm a little And then during the routines when I'm not talking, when there's music playing and I'm just juggling, I'm so nervous because I'm super self-critical of how what I consider low-tech those routines are. And also... 
are they reaching the audience? When you juggle without talking and you're a talking act, is it wasting the audience's time? Are they going to get up and leave? Am I going to drop and ruin this routine that's one of the only non-talking, serious juggling bits in the act? And then at the very end, I do five tennis rackets. Well, I have a bad left wrist. My left wrist never worked properly since about 91, 1990 or 91. My left wrist has never really worked properly. Was it an injury or... No, it's an overuse thing where it grew a cyst, but it didn't grow a cyst on the outside where it's really easy to see it. It's down on the inside and it pushes the tendons where they don't work right. So my left hand has not worked right in decades. And when I talked to a doctor about it, they said, well, we have a surgery where we can get in there and get that cyst out. I said, are there any risks to my career? I said, well, every surgery has risks. I was like, no, no, I need you to say that there's no risk. Right. right now, I'm this clumsy juggler whose left hand makes him drop stuff and I make a living. If you fix me, I want to drop less. <laughs> I don't yeah, yeah, want to yeah. find out that now I'm worse than I was. He goes, well, if you're getting by with it, but the problem is juggling. I juggled up to a certain level where I, I reached 300 catches once with seven balls. And I reached 200 bounces with seven ball bounce. Wow. I reached 77 back crosses with triples with five clubs. And I got uh, 68 of out, three club Albert throws. And all of those I wanted... I wanted the Albert throws, the three club Alberts, the five club back crosses. I wanted to learn a seven, uh, a six club juggling solo, six clubs. Uh, and I wanted to learn seven rings solid. And all of them, I can tell where they stopped was running into that messed up left wrist. It just mm. doesn't move properly like the right one does. And so right. I'm so jealous of people who've never had a hand in this problem. First of all, my right hand is my dominant hand. So my right hand is already better than the left. But as the left got more clunky and more sort of clicky and sort of stuck, I could still do five objects in a show. But when I get to that five tennis rackets, if anything's going to mess up in the show because of the wrist, it's that. So if you were to see me backstage right before I come out on stage, I'm just over and over and over getting those five tennis rackets going and just going, oh, please. I don't, I'm not religious, but I'm praying to somebody or something. Don't let me mess up the five tennis rackets. And I'm stretching my wrist and pulling it and trying to keep it warm and massaging it and hanging from the ladder that goes up to the tech booth so that I can stretch it again. And I wonder about other guys. Do they just sit there reading a book? Oh, this will be fine. I've done this a million times. And I'm thinking, come on, tennis racket routine. Let's get it. <laughs> well, I think the best advice that I always give people is that just because you're nervous doesn't mean you have to act like you're nervous. So you see what someone might see me backstage and it looks like I'm very calm. Like I said, I'm one of those guys who would be reading and yawning and seeming like they're walking in the park. But internally, I think we all go through that. It's just how the outward manifestation of it is. And I think if you allow yourself to act nervous, it kind of reinforces it and people around you become nervous. So I like to at least pretend I'm calm and that seems to help me become calm. I definitely pretend I'm calm if anyone's seeing me. Right. You know, I don't want anybody. And I'm not really... Because my act is mainly a uh, comedy act, I cannot, for, I don't know if you ever had this problem. This is an aside. Mm -hmm. So I'll briefly just say, because my act is a comedy act, I don't have to look really smooth like James Bond on stage or anything. But I do want the people who hire me to feel like I've got everything under control. And I do, because I always have a bailout. If a routine falls apart, I've always got a way to end the show without maybe nailing that trick in a, in a way that gets the audience to relax. I always know how to break the tension. I never get them to have that, let me try it again and get the, you know, that horrible yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. Somebody right. in an IJA competition, they hold up one finger. Yeah, one more up, time. Yeah. They try it again, they blow it again, they try it again, they blow it again, they try it again, they blow it again. And the audience feels terrible. It doesn't matter if it's jugglers, 
If it's a regular paid audience, if it's a free audience at a school or church or hospital show, give up on that trick, smile and go, oh, well, next time. Just let the tension off. Well, I'm never going to look nervous in the way that looks unprofessional, but I'll feel nervous. And I think in a way that feeling nervous has helped me be a better entertainer. It does not necessarily make me a better technical juggler, but it makes me a better entertainer. So I'll take it. I'll take who I am. I'm used to it. I'm comfortable in my own skin, you know, like that. But what I was going to ask you, though, is have you ever been booked somewhere as you and uh, Barry or just you to do something where you wanted to do comedy? Right. Let's Mm -hmm. say talking comedy with your juggling and the people cannot get it that you need to be heard and that your act is comedy. They, because you're a juggler, they think you're just going to stand there and juggle. Have you ever had that when you get booked? Had a couple times. I think maybe I've told this story before, but when we auditioned for the Ice Capades, like at a certain time, if you remember, like when you, we saw Albert Lucas, and uh, I just talked to Dan Rosen about this on the last podcast, about that was one of the things we thought we could do was be like an ice skating juggler. That was an actual, you know, a, a job that you saw people doing. Oh, yeah. So we went to the Ice Capades. And we went in and we said, well, we're comedy jugglers. We want to come in and audition. And they said, we went in there and we started talking and they thought, oh, we thought you meant you juggled funny things when you said you were a comedy <laughs> juggler. We didn't realize you actually talked. We thought you juggled funny objects. We're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we, we didn't get that job. And I'm trying to think, what's a funny object? Uh, a kumquat? I don't know. I, that's, that's the question, but that was their impression. But what you said made a lot of sense in that, because also I think understandability of your material for a comedian is, is the first most important thing. So if they can't hear what you're saying, you're screwed. You're never going to be funny if they can't actually hear the jokes. Exactly. And they'll, they'll, they'll book you somewhere and they'll go, now remember, this, this whole audience only speaks Italian. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, but what am I? I mean, I speak five languages. I, I got my degree in French. I live in Germany. I also speak Norwegian pretty well and Spanish pretty well. But if you want to get my show, at least one of those languages, the audience has to understand. And I don't mind throwing out lines in every language. Right. When Norwegian Cruise Lines first looked at my video, it was under that, the Blackburn website that you saw. Those guys, they're, uh, they're tough. They have so many acts there. It's really tough to break in with them. So they haven't used me very much. I've, my main, all my cruise ship jobs basically come from another agency called Gary Parks Music. I really wanted to impress the Blackburns, and I tried very hard. I made a video. I made a second video. I talked to people who were represented by them, but they just never really treated me like one of their important acts. And I think because they have plenty of acts all the time. Yeah. They, they don't know me. They've never met me in person. They've never seen what I do. They've never auditioned me, and they're not going to because I hate auditions. What they did was they told me when I begged them to please get me some more work because I had finally got my face on their website, and they had one job for me eight months into the future. And that wasn't right. going to be enough. If I was committing to cruise ships, I had already done a bunch of ships with Princess with a small agency that nobody ever heard of, and he could only get Princess. He used to know them, so he could only... So I'm trying to get other lines, right? And so I said, how about Norwegian? I live in Europe, and Norwegian Cruise Lines, NCL, had these two ships that stayed in Europe all the time, while all the other ships transatlantic and went back to the Caribbean for the winter. These ships stayed and did the Canary Islands and, and the Med all winter. And since I was a Europe-based act, that was perfect. And they have a big fleet. So once you get well-known with them, you should have a lot of work with them, hopefully, right? Yeah. Plus, a lot of my favorite jugglers, Steve Rawlings is a, a great comedy juggler. I really like it from England. And mm-hmm. he did a lot of Norwegian. And then this really cool bolo act guy called Oscar Silvera. He's really cool. And he does a lot of Norwegian. So I knew that I could fit in there. But 
no matter what I said, Blackburn would come back to me, John, they always put people on their ships who don't talk because, you know, the booker thinks your, your video is good, but you're just, she said, you're just too chatty and people mm. don't understand English. And I said, have you told them that I do the show in multiple languages at the same time? My last name's Nations. It's my real name. It's not a stage name. It has an S on it. I like all countries. I'm not patriotic. I'm a citizen of Earth. I use many languages in my show. You know, okay? And they're like, uh, so they dropped the ball. Well, then my new agent, Gary Parks, he said, so what about Norwegian? I'm like, I'd love to work for them, but they think I'm too chatty. And Gary says, has, has your other agent told them that you speak multiple languages in your show? I said, I hope so. And he goes, well, I'll try them out. Two weeks later, he says, Norwegian's going to try you out. Can you do Spanish? I'm like, yeah. He goes, okay, they want you to use Spanish in the show and English. Can you do a little German? I'm like, of course. And he goes, and maybe some French? I'm like, yeah. He goes, what about Italian? I said, I don't really know Italian. I can say a couple of words. Ciao, buongiorno, grazie. He goes, okay, put those in. You're <laughs> going to get a shot on the Norwegian spirit. And uh, it's a lot of Spanish speakers. So put as much Spanish as you can. Good luck. I went out, got a friend of mine who happened to grow up trilingual, English, German, and Spanish. And I brought him over and I got him some food and a coffee. And we sat there and we translated every line we could think of out of my show into idiomatic Spanish. So I would have it written down. And I got to the ship and I choked so badly on some of those lines. But because I already spoke Spanish, a lot of the lines I did, as I was walking on stage, the, the cruise director, a really nice guy named Gio, he comes, he was from Costa Rica. He goes, John, as much Spanish as you can and keep the English in too for the others. Okay, go for it. Uh, good luck. And I said, hey, I forgot something. He goes, what? I go, what's the word for stage? And he goes, stage? El escenario. I'm like, oh, yeah, el escenario. Gracias. <laughs> you know, so I went out and I did so many languages and got so many laughs from different pockets of the audience. And when I got backstage, he looked like he was going to hug me. He's like, that was great. That was just what we need. You did so many languages, man. That's all. So he gave me a good write up. And after that, I got lots of Norwegian work. Now, for some reason, that's fallen off. They have a new booker, and I haven't had Norwegian work in over a year. And that bums me out because I loved it. I loved right. working. I did four different ships for them. Interestingly enough, you have to be careful with agents because sometimes an agent has a great reputation and a great glossy website. And some of the best people that you know work for them and do a great job. And Steve Rawlings is brilliant. He uses Blackburn, and they're fine, right? But the Blackburns never told, according to the booker who's retired now, Sue, the Blackbirds had never told her that I can do multiple languages in my show. Yeah, that's dropping the ball for sure, because that's exactly what they need. Make sure that she knew that. So as soon as Gary Parks, my current main agent, as soon as he said, well, John can do his show in multiple languages. He lives in Germany. He lived in Florida, learned Spanish. He's got a degree in French. Put him on. Let's see what happens. And it resulted in a whole bunch of work that I was very grateful and lucky to get. But what was cool is I could finally tell mom and dad who paid for the degree in French right. that I used the French on stage in my show. See, most of my street show was actually built in France. I was over in France as a student, ran out of money and had my juggling stuff and started street busking in Tours, which is this beautiful city right in the Chateau region uh, of the Loire Valley in, in France. And I was doing French every day, speaking French every day, going to school in French. It was a summer program. And uh I'd go out in the night and do a little bit of a juggling show. When I graduated college, I immediately went back to France and started doing my show with fire. I didn't have fire the first time. And then it went even better. I had four torches. Later on, I got a fifth one. My street show finale is five fire torches. And uh, then I break it down to four, then to three in one hand, and then I do my money lines. I had everything in French, my whole show. In and it was so weird when I moved my shows to Scandinavia to go back to English. The Scandinavians, even if you can speak Swedish or Norwegian, if you're busking Scandinavia, you use English. 
not only hmm. because of the international tourists and population, right. but they expect they don't dub their movies and they don't dub their TV shows and they sing every song from every major act. So they know English beautifully, even the kids. So when the littlest kids, if you know a few words in Norwegian or Swedish or Danish, that's great. But when you're in Scandinavia, you use English. And it was so strange for me to have to translate my own show <laughs> back from French into English. <laughs> Let's talk about this international travel. I mean, you're a guy that sort of, uh, like you say, grew up in South Carolina. But as long as I've known you, you've been sort of a traveler. You've been an explorer, an adventurer. What draws you to uh, these other countries and what kind of keeps you from living maybe in the United States? It's two words, uh, three words, not enough material. <laughs> Once people okay. have seen me, I have to make sure I go somewhere new or people won't laugh at my jokes anymore. Uh, okay. I'm amazed by John Stewart and Trevor Noah and David Letterman and people who have enough material to keep coming on every night and being funny. Now, I know they use writers. I know they pay the writers well. I hope they do. But for me, a guy with no writers, unless you count me, I right. feel like the best thing to do is if you work Bergen, Norway or Oslo, Norway for a month, get out, do the other big city. So the other one of those two. And then when you've done that for a month, get out of there and go to Copenhagen or Gothenburg. And then when you're done with that, of course, it'll be freezing by then and dark. Then go to the UK if you can get away with it. They're really strict about borders now but and about people. They consider even busking, they consider working without a visa. So you really can't do it anymore. But mm, uh, And right. then France, go back to France. So what I would do is I, I, I wouldn't really burn out on my show because once I've done that pitch for a month, I go somewhere. And it felt like I was sure to have mostly a fresh audience. Now, in all those places, of course, the... The, the audience changed every day. Even among locals, it changed every day. Sure, there's turnover, yeah. I worked in Bergen, Norway for five summers, and one day I did a show in Berlin when it was too cold, and the only people who would stay and watch in this cold day, it even started snowing during my street show. This was pre-ships, and I was kind of desperate for money in the, in the fall, and uh, these people were Norwegian, and their little girl didn't understand English. So here I am standing on Hachamat <laughs> in Berlin, doing my show in English and Norwegian, mostly Norwegian for this little kid and her parents. And they had never, they lived in Bergen the entire time I worked in Bergen. And yet they had never seen me in the main center of the square on any of those beautiful summer days. Bergen is famous for being the rainiest city in Europe. It can be cold in the winter. So when I do my show in Bergen, I always say, ladies and gentlemen, isn't Bergen a beautiful place to spend the summer? I always spend both summer days. They had never seen me. So yes, new people are always around. People that you can't believe they've never seen you and suddenly they have. It's cool. But when I feel someone's already seen my show, it makes me quite nervous if I'm thinking, okay, now they're seeing the jokes again. They're seeing the tricks again. Are they going to do it a third time? And I start feeling worried. I got to make it new. I got to change it up. Fortunately, I do change my show a little bit every single time I do it. Even if I'm on a ship and I do two shows in one night, the wording of the jokes is slightly different. I experiment with different timings and expressions, and I'll stage it differently. One, one show that evening, I'll go over and kind of face a little bit towards the left part of the show and then take a couple steps back and turn and look around. And then on that next show, the same night with all the same material, I'll be on the other side of the stage. And maybe I'll start by looking at the balcony and then look down at the front. The reason I do that isn't just for variety. It's also so I don't forget where I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> my brain is just as clumsy as my body. And I'll be like, wait, did I already do the tennis racket? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes in the, if you're doing multiple shows, like, did I do that joke before? I, I, you don't want to do, repeat yourself in front of the audience. I was glad to hear that you agree there. <laughs> Nowadays, if someone wanted to kind of do a street performing tour of Europe, is that something still people could consider as an adventure? I'm, I'm really sad to say that Scandinavia, which was the best place on earth when it wasn't raining, 
has now decided that what's good for them, and this is a foolish thing, right. is to go cash-free. Cash-free. Right. Okay, I've been to cities that used to be wonderful for shows. And now, Gothenburg, Sweden is one of the worst culprits. What a beautiful city. They used to have this spot by a statue, and if you could get the gypsy beggars to move aside, and if you get the South American musicians with the refrigerator-sized speakers to give you a break, you could do a great show there with a big circle, some people sitting, some standing, some kids, some adults, some locals, some foreigners. Wonderful show. You could make 200 bucks in that. 40-minute show. is great. Now, the same people will come by and say, oh, I'd love to give you a tip, but I don't use cash anymore. And the kids will go, well, you got, you got to have some money to buy some of that ice cream. No. And they pull out their phone. They have a payment app on their phone. It's like, this is really clever, all this bloody technology, but I actually don't want to be cash-free, even in my private life. Is there a way to accept cash-free tips? I mean, can they, can you have a reader or something? Here's the issue in Scandinavia. As much as I love Scandinavia, one of my great criticisms is to me, it's okay to pay higher taxes than Americans pay to have a better life. Scandinavians have a much easier life in most ways. University is free. And, and in most of Scandinavia, medical care is free. You can't fall through the cracks. The social safety net is great. Plus the income tax rates are fairly reasonable. Once you realize you're not going to be paying for student loans or, or tuition, and you're not going to be paying for any medical bills, they're actually getting off lighter than Americans who pay not only tax, but also deductibles and premiums and student loans and tuition. You see, the problem with that system is they do try to tax absolutely everything. Now, they've never bothered with street performers who have cash in their hat. I know this because I wanted, when I before I did ships, I wanted to move to Norway. And I went up and asked them if I could open a bank account. And they said, you have to have a Norwegian taxpayer number. I'm like, well, how am mm. I going to get that? Well, you have to live here and work here. It's like, well, I live here every summer and I'm a street performer. Let me show you. And I showed him a couple of things that prove I'm a street performer. I showed him my bag. I said, and I want to be able to put my coins in your bank's machine that counts coins automatically because it's a drag to carry all these heavy coins. Yeah. They said, well, you can't get an account here. I'm like, well, mm. I said, I, I would pay taxes on it. You'd have all, you'd have a record of who I am. You'd have a video of me every time I come to the ATM. You, you know when and where I deposit my money and how much it is. And then you can tax me on it and I'll pay it gladly. Like, nah, just keep all your money in the, in the free, whatever. So they didn't give a crap. And that meant it was very inconvenient. And my friends had to always change my coins for me. And I was always a little bit of a persona non grata as far as the Norwegian economy or the banking system anyway. Now that there's a system called VIPs and there's that QR code thing that Nick Broad of the Busking Project is working on. You can set up a thing in Norway where you can have people tip you using electronic means. But now, unless you can get listed as a charity, they tax half of it. Oh, half of it. So let's say let's say you were only going to get one kroner. Well, one kroner is like six cents or something. It's not worth it. And let's say you're going to get 10 kroner. That's a little bit more than a dollar. Now you're only getting 50 cents of it. And where's that money going? For years, they didn't want, they wouldn't have our money. No, your money's no good here. Get out, street performing vagrant. You don't have a tax number. You know what I'm offering to get a tax number and become a Norwegian taxpayer, which is pretty rare for an American. Americans seem to think that all the roads are fixed for free. And we have a great uh, internet structure where you get high speed internet free, but nobody needs to pay any taxes at all. That's the goal of every American, isn't it? Get rich as hell, pay zero taxes. <laughs> That's why we have the current president. Look, he, he admits he never pays taxes because he's too damn smart. But uh, here I was an American abroad willing to pay to a foreign power and just so that I could have the convenience of banking there and not carrying all this cash. And they were saying, no, now, if you can figure out a way to convince your cell phone addicted, credit card addicted audience, and they don't do credit cards, they do debit cards over there, but if they pay for an ice cream for their child, 10 kroner, it's like two bucks or less, 
They still buy, are they, are they still buying stuff like that from Mr. V's corporation? A lot of Americans don't realize what you're talking about is a lot of European countries use coins. And so if you're a street yeah. performer, you might walk away with 20 pounds of coins you're carrying around and stuff. It'll hurt your, it'll rip the straps. I've had these happen. Make a hole in your bag. Have it in a, a plastic bag and have a hole pop and all the coins fall oh. out and roll away. The, the bag that you're carrying your coins in is a backpack. One of the straps rips or it's rained <laughs> and you've picked up your hat and now the hat is wet and the coins are all wet. Wet coins, believe it or not, trap a lot of water for a long time and they make it even heavier. So you wish all your money was paper money, but they, they live by, now I like coins. I think coins are magic. I've always had this idea about writing a a cool science fiction magic story about a person who's who has magical powers with coins. I, it's really, I'm fascinated by the different coins in the world, especially if they're actually worth something. In the old days of the Italian lira, lira coins were worth jack. You know, you had to always have paper to have anything. Now that you have the euro and the pound and the kroners and all those, it's cool, but the coins could weigh you down. But now what I have a problem with cash-free, first of all, it kills street performing. There are a lot of places where you always saw people queued up to use the pitch, lined up to use that spot. And now there's nobody there. And you go in and you set up your stuff and you go put your hat down. People come down, we really like your show, we don't use cash. Some of them are so nice in Norway that they'll run down to the bank machine and get you a paper note and throw it in the hat. Because it's one of the richest countries in the world. They could all afford to put the smallest note, which is a 50 kroner note. The issue is, if they go to the bank machine, which they call the mini bank, and I always had a joke in my show. I'm like, it's okay if you don't have any cash with you folks. I'm just so glad you were here. And there's a mini bank right there. And I'd point to the nearest mini bank. Yeah, the lowest denomination of, of cash in paper that the mini bank will spit out is 100 kroner. And that's a little bit steep tip for most people. It's more than $10. So then they've got to get that money and go into a shop that still takes cash and change it and get out of 50 or some smaller coins. By then, they're just, you're gone. But I don't like the idea of cash-free for another reason, and that is... Cash-free means that you're always tracked with everything you do. Yep, yeah, there's always a record. There's all, And there's always a record. And in addition to that, let's say you figure that you've somehow magically found a government that will never screw you around, and you don't mind. You have nothing to hide. You're always perfectly willing to have every single thing you do recorded and tracked. Fine, I, I don't like that. But if here's the problem. Mr. Visa gets a little cut from either you, the merchant, or both on every single transaction. To the credit card company, yeah. Yeah, whoever is doing it, usually it's Visa. And they're rich enough. They're already hard to reach on customer service. They're already charging extremely exorbitant late fees and jacking up your interest rates and being unforgiving and blocking your card and all this stuff. And so to me, to empower a gigantic international faceless robotic greedy corporation even more by saying now we don't do anything without you mr visa it's like having stockholm syndrome it's like saying right. well i'm already in hock to this company for two thousand bucks that i can't seem to shake or half my student loan or whatever and now every single time i get a bojangles cajun filet biscuit or a krona is in norwegian in norway or a little frozen pizza to cook at home i'm using a card and they're getting a cut and the price is going up a little bit you see what I mean? Yeah, we're giving away some of our freedom for convenience. Yeah, and I don't think it's that convenient. Let me give you an example. I was in Norway two years ago, and I had done a couple of street shows the previous fall, but I was in Norway two years ago on a ship job. So I had my bag of coins left over from the previous time I was in Norway that I had had the wherewithal to remember and stick in my bag. Right. So I'm in a grocery store in Norway while the ship is in port, just walking. I love Norway. I like being there no matter what, even if it's bad weather. But it's expensive, so I usually get my food uh, and drink at grocery stores. 
So I'm in the queue at the grocery store and suddenly everything goes black and the emergency lights turn on. And I'm in the queue to pay for my groceries. And everybody else is like, well, so, you know, folks, we're closed until the power comes back on. I was like, well, I have these groceries right here. Can I pay for them? Like, no, our card machine isn't working. I said, but I have exact change. When I poured the coins out and counted out the exact change, the people around me were absolutely stunned. <laughs> nobody had cash. All those Norwegians, nobody had cash. And I'm standing there and they go, oh, well, that's, let me look at the prices. That's fine. I said, you know, this is okay. So suddenly I was at the front of the queue paying for my stuff and walking out. And everybody else had to either shelve or leave their stuff and wait. When I came back by and talked to them later, they said the power outage only lasted like an hour. But I was in and out because I had cash. And this is just one of the ways I believe that if you see a beggar and that beggar looks like somebody who's had their foot blown off or they can't see or they're in a wheelchair and you want to I like to help people like that. You see a homeless person, even if it's a homeless person who maybe could physically get a job, they right. might have reason why they're not doing that well. And you might feel like, uh, I'm going to give this guy how is he going to have a payment system set up with your app? No. Or your no, we cannot eliminate cash. And here's what I believe will happen, honestly. If we do eliminate cash totally and nobody has it, and it's just gone. Maybe they make a law against it. First of all, it's really going to hurt homeless people. And I don't, I've been homeless sometimes by choice, sometimes not. I believe eventually there will become a black market form of cash, whether it's cryptocurrency, which is very interesting, or a kind that doesn't depend on electricity or internet at all. I think people might start writing special holographic or stamped notes of their own. I think they will become an underground currency no matter what to keep the government and the visa corporation out of our private business. And I think that may be a direction that society does not want to go where you've forced the cash to disappear. It's an interesting time we live in and the future is, it can be scary, can't it? The, the way some things are going, the way our country is going and the what is the future for John Nations hold? We're kind of getting toward the end of our, our podcast. We try to keep this around an hour. This has gone really fast. What, where do you see yourself going with your juggling and your career? And what's coming up next for John Nations? Oh, uh, well, the thing is, I, I don't know. I'm, I've never gotten started on any of the things I wanted to do early enough in my life. I've never felt like I was on the train the time I wanted to board it. My parents had spent some money to put me in a private school to make sure I had a foreign language because they never had that. And I already felt like I was a pretty well-rounded person from that and from all the reading I had done. So I really wanted to be a juggler. And I instead delayed it so that I could get the degree to try to impress my parents. And they were grateful that I did it, but it never helped me that much. The degree was, it was delaying life. I was glad that I, during college, I spent so much time practicing that at least I was a good juggler, but it didn't really help me that much as an entertainer to be in college. I think college was a thing that a lot of people go to that they don't need. And I, I believe engineers need it and, and uh, maybe pilots. Doctors. And, yeah, doctors and lawyers, they need it. Okay. But for me, maybe even political science or criminal justice, judges and stuff like that. Sure. Something technical or specific. But for me, college was something that I, I that delayed my actual life from starting. Now, let me go back to your question. What do I see as next? Well, I've really always wanted to be a cruise ship juggler. As soon as I heard of Max Winfrey, who was a guy mm -hmm. that wanted me to sub for him down in um, Orlando when he got on ships and he needed people in, at Disney and I subbed for him, it was kind of a mistake to do that because then the people at Disney always said, oh, we have to get Max if we're going to hire you because he hired you. And so it was really hard to break away and finally get hired. He was like, no, no, I'm busy with other things. Go ahead and work for them directly. And they still wouldn't hire me without talking to him. So that was a setback. The point is, 
I've always wanted to be a cruise ship juggler. And yet when I first talked to the cruise ship jugglers, they would tell me that I'm not good enough or I dropped too much. And it was not that I wasn't good enough. It was that they didn't want me in there competing with them. The truth is, though, we shouldn't take that attitude. We should welcome good acts. If it's a good act, uh, up and coming young jugglers that are technical and good looking and and much more sex you up type looking people that you might feel like, oh, God, if I let this person come into the cruise ship industry, he'll get all my work. No, he won't. He will find his niche. You'll get your niche. And the best thing is the juggling act on ship idea will not disappear. Right. If we allow ourselves to all go gray and get older and now we're, we're shutting the doors on a young generation, soon the idea of a juggler on a ship will be gone. Because we haven't allowed it to pass the torch from the neck to the next generation. And there are a lot of people who say, well, but if the young generation comes in too soon, won't that shut us out? You might get shut out from the lines who try to be really, really hip, but you won't get shut out from the lines who want someone they can relate to their audience. I find my best audiences either have little kids and their parents or especially the retired people. They're my best audiences. They like the vaudeville style stuff. And I'm hoping that when the people who haven't retired yet go up, I'm still on there juggling for them even later. So you say, what do I want to do in the future? I got into juggling way late when I finally had a girlfriend who said, you're good enough. Don't listen to those other guys. As soon as I got on, the other jugglers were still saying, yeah, but you're not good enough to do this. Yeah, but you, you can only be a, a piazza act. That was on Princess where you were an atrium juggler. Princess, were, yeah. Yeah, I was a piazza act for my first three ships. I'm like, you'll only be that. You'll never be. I, I can't believe how many jugglers I thought were my friends were putting me down and didn't want me to do it. And they're all jealous of the other people who do well. I'm thinking, wait, as long as, for example, Pete Matthews, this British guy who's been doing yeah. ships for 25 years or something, he's such a staple in the industry that as long as his act exists, even though he's probably the highest paid, the most famous, and he gets the first shot to have a full calendar before any of us else get even a nod, it's good that he's there. Because when they're using Pete, they're always going to think, yeah, juggling is good. It works for Pete. We can't get Pete. Let's get another comedy juggler. And if that person brings it, then they'll say, oh, well, we can't get him or Pete. Let's get another comedy joke. See what I mean? Sure, of course. So my goal right now is to try to – I can't fill up my schedule this year. For some reason, after very successful – I was struggling during the first year, 2012. And then 2013, I had a few more. But 14, 15, 16, and 17, those are the years when cruise ship juggling not only helped me survive and thrive and see some places I've never been. But also, I was able to finally start putting some money aside. You know, I don't own a house. I have no kids, no wife. My car is really old. I don't even have a car in Germany where I live. And my bike is a secondhand bike. My goal is to thrive and make a living with a retirement from being an entertainer, whether it's my comedy juggling, just comedy. I also love to spoof lyrics and sing. I'm a pretty good singer, but I can't play an instrument. And that's a problem. So I'd love to learn enough guitar or piano to accompany my spoof lyrics. I have probably seven songs that are almost ready to go. I've, have you ever heard 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover? By Paul sure, Simon. Paul Simon. Yeah, so mine is 50 Ways to Lose Your Juggle, and I've performed it at three juggle mentions, one in Atlanta and two in Germany. Would you sing us a little uh, a little bit of it, do you think, John? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, for over four millennia now, we jugglers work and strive to reach the point of mastery, and a few of us arrive. But for me, it's never easy when I'm doing four or five. There must be 50 ways to lose a juggle. Absolute perfection never really was my goal. Still always thought by now I'd have a bit more real control. The trouble is that other factors always play a role. There must be 50 ways to lose a juggle. At least 50 ways to lose a juggle. Bounced off my handstand. Threw too high, got 
didn't have a good grip, skip. That club just fell free, and so on, like that. Like, yeah, yeah, funny. And then I have that, and I also have a song that I'm working on called Start With Three, which is based on Let It Be by the Beatles. You can do nine later, start with three. I, I suggest the ukulele. That's not, a, that's not a tough instrument, the ukulele. Well, actually, a lot of jugglers use it, and I finally tried the ukulele when I finally went to Hawaii. I went into this shop, and I was listening to this guy play. He was amazing, and he owned the shop in Kona, in uh, Hawaii. He owned the shop and he was very, very infectious with his enthusiasm. He showed me a couple of chords and tried to show me how to do over the rainbow and stuff. So it would be good to add an instrument. So you asked, as we wrap up the podcast, because I don't want to, you know, way overdo it. So you have to edit for two hours. It's all good. This has been fun, man. You're you're a really interesting guy. Well, thanks. And so are you. My goal is to somehow for the next two years, I'd really like to work up to where my favorite cruise lines, Cunard, Holland, America, Norwegian and Princess, if they would fill my schedule up. I don't need to add all the other ones. I don't need to be a superstar, but if they would just fill my schedule up, they've done it before. Between those lines, I can't believe I get to work Cunard. What a beautiful line it is. Gorgeous ships, Queen Mary too. Are you kidding me? You know, and they're really friendly with me on there. And same with Holland America. I'm a newcomer to the industry, but those two lines have been so really polite and helpful in so many ways. And then Princess, they've been good to me too. The thing with Princess is sometimes they'll just have a year where they don't call you at all. And you right. wonder what's gone, what's going, but, but it's a really amazing company uh, and they have a huge fleet. So if you're only on there a little bit relative to how many ships they have, you are still really on there. And that's cool. And then um, Norwegian is great because like they use my foreign languages. Some of their ships often stay in Europe, even in the off, quote, off season. They have a huge fleet too. So those are lines that I think they, I fit the demographic. I still get emails and Christmas cards from some of the passengers that I've met on those lines. I'm really, really grateful to, to have that work. And for my, because I've really committed, I really, I bought all the equipment, the luggage. I learned all about how to do the ships and do the shows. For me, it was incredibly hard to say how long my show was going to be. And I thought I would never have the 45 minutes without looking at a watch. But now if I do my main show, it comes out 45 pretty much every time. Boom. You know, I just have a feeling for it now. And I'd like to continue with what I've committed to for now. And in the future, I'd like to write an autobiography. And let me just copyright this title right now. Are they watching me or my balls? That's my life story <laughs> right there. And then um, I'd the like John to, Nation story. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the, actually, it's probably going to be Are they watching me or my balls? Memoirs of a traveling juggler. And then it'll have my name. Yeah, because it's me. But, but I love writing, so I'd like to do something with my writing. I'd like to be a rewriter in Hollywood. There's so many movies that are great until the ending, and the ending sucks. I'd love to go in there and punch that up and help them fix the dialogue. And I'd also like to be able to use juggling, teaching juggling. On some of the ships, they have me do this workshop where I teach three balls. And I do workshops at conventions. I teach the head roll, basic kickups, a little bit of passing if I have a partner, and balancing while juggling. I love teaching balancing while juggling because I figured out a method that almost always works. If you can balance and you can juggle, I can usually teach you to combine the two. These are things I like. But as far as the future, I think I just want to make sure my family has huge longevity. My grandmother's still alive. She's 95. Right. And so from both sides of my family, all the grandparents and great grandparents got into their 90s, except my grandfather who smoked. So what I need to do, since I'm healthy and have longevity, I need to figure out a way to keep entertaining, not getting up too early, I hope. <laughs> but <laughs> Sleep to, until 12, yeah. Yeah, to thrive. I'd, I'd love to have a life partner. But if I have a – my last girlfriend, we broke up in 2014. If I'm going to have a life partner, she has to sort of enjoy the idea of traveling with me. And if, if I'm away and she's holding the fort – 
we could talk through Skype and then we spend a lot of time together when I am home. My last girlfriend, when I got on ship, she helped me get on ship. She helped me prepare the stuff, the show, even packing and unpacking and everything, costume maintenance, all this. She was really cool. But it turns out she hated the ship. She hated me being gone. She didn't like coming on the ships with me. She didn't like cruising in general. I think for me, one of the things that's always nagging at me is wouldn't it be great to have a life partner? Yeah, but she kind of has to be one of those people. I got to ask you this. When you're away traveling and your wife is home, does that create any tension or is it okay? Well, you know, I was in a different situation in that when you're doing mostly corporate one-nighter type stuff, you know, you're only gone for three or four days at the most. I mean, we had a couple longer trips, but usually I was never gone. I always have a rule like 10 days, and that's only a couple times a year I'll be gone that long. So, but man, what you're talking about is very universal, this idea of relationships and traveling and you get a six-month contract. What does that do to your relationship? How do you have a life? How do you have a partner? Well, yeah, but I mean, like Eric Olson, the magician, he said that his wife kind of runs the business and he yeah. just goes out and does the shows. That's a fantasy for me. Wow. Imagine she's good with paperwork and maybe answers calls for you or opens mail for you and stuff. And you just keep bringing home the bacon. But then every time he got a chance, if he could get them, like if he was doing a New Year's Eve show up in a ski resort or out at Las Vegas, he'd say, can I bring my wife with me? And they'd say, sure. You'd stay in the same hotel. We'll fly both of you or whatever. Yeah. So he would do that. I thought that's still possible. What do you think? Maybe it's still possible? Well, I think now I think maybe even teaming up with somebody, you know, putting an act together with somebody. The idea of them traveling with you and sort of just being a supportive role, I think is a bit old fashioned. I think now you want an equal partner who has an act. Yeah, my ex was a good juggler. My ex, we were together three years. She's German. And I thought it was forever. I mean, I completely, I don't really care about religion or marriage or that garbage. But to me, in my heart, I had sort yeah. of found my life partner and all those little games you play to try to meet women, I threw away and I still haven't figured any of them out anymore. But she was a great juggler. I taught her to do, well, I helped her learn five balls, but she could do four when I met her. And I helped her a lot with her four clubs. She was getting four clubs. I helped her get really good with four. And I taught her to do three clubs with a balance. And she was good looking and spoke great English and fluent German too, you know, and, and we had, we could pass eight clubs and seven torches. When she left, I haven't met anyone who would be interested in that kind of thing who doesn't already have their partner. So I would love to go to a juggling convention and be juggling and meet a woman who likes passing with me and she likes me. I'd like to be both, you know, a, a match made in juggling where you're actually together and you do shows. I wouldn't want it to put too much pressure on the relationship, but sure. And what you and Barry did is also really cool. Having a guy friend, I used to travel a little bit with some guys. One of them was, uh, even though he was a great juggler, he just never contributed to the organization or of the writing. He was a real solid catching and throwing and athletic as hell, musically talented and pretty good with, with delivering lines. But I was having to do all the mental work, both of organizing the trips, getting the, occasionally he'd get a gig for us, but mostly I'd get the gigs. And then I had to kind of do all the, planning of the show and everything. And if anything went wrong, he never kind of took any responsibility for it going wrong. It was always my fault. But I, I think you're right. My goal when Annika was together with me was if she had stayed with me, she was going to be an equal in the show because she was so good at poi. I can't do poi. There was going to be a glow poi number combined with a glow ball number. We had all these cool ideas for that. And also I wanted her to kind of shine because look at the ships of all the juggling acts on the ships. Is there any solo female not that i know of i mean look at any situation even street performance or or as far as the comedy aspect of juggling it hasn't it's been very male dominated for sure yeah like the ventriloquist girl in england she's really funny 
with her ventriloquist show, but she's the only one I've ever seen. I can't remember her name now, but she has that little monkey puppet. Yeah, yeah. Is her is her puppet named Kinky Kong? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. <laughs> I don't remember her name. I, I was thinking about her not that long ago because I'd worked with her as well. There are some very good female ventriloquists. Well, the ventriloquists, but also female magicians. You occasionally, you know, Melinda was Anthony's boss for a while, you know. That was a female magician, but she wasn't really comedy. I think women can be very funny. I was a big fan growing up of all stand-up comedy, and I liked Elaine Boozler and Paula Poundstone. Uh, Rita Rudner. I, I thought they were just brilliant. I, I thought it was great that they were they were females. But my, my point is, women can be funny. Of course. They, they, they are not always the funny in the way of a man, but vive la différence. Now, you can see with Gina and with Joël Huguenin, which is a super incredible, talented female juggler also, mm -hmm. that they can be just as technical as we can or more, because juggling doesn't divide itself on gender lines. And they have that sexual grace, that feminine balance that, that's so awesome. But you don't see them doing comedy very much. And yet Gina's got a huge sense of humor. I didn't hear your podcast, but I'm sure you guys had some laughs. Oh, she's she's charming and wonderful. She's she's got all the attributes you want. Well, she's that's why they we, they need to start cloning her as soon as possible because <laughs> every every guy wants to be able to juggle with a woman. We have a little video when I met her the first time. We did a little five club takeaway. Boy, is she solid! But also, she's really a whole person. She's not some obsessive juggler. She's a costume designer. She's she's funny. She's smart. She's politically extremely aware. She speaks fluent Russian. She's got all kinds of international stories she can tell you, and her family is international on both sides. And so it's an amazing person. But I think even Gina would probably not do a comedy show. As amazing as she is, I have not yet seen the juggler who will audition and go out and do a comedy entertaining show on a ship or Vegas that's female. And I wonder why that is. Well, I think it's, well, for Gina's case, I think it's the tradition she comes up with. I mean, she comes in through six-generation circus. and as, as lovely as she is, think, put her aside for a minute. Have you ever met a female juggler? How about Laura Green? Laura Green did a little bit of talking comedy. But, but in general, you don't see any mainstream – on a ship, I've heard of so many acts where there's a guy and his wife or a guy and his partner doing juggling. That's great. I think uh, Mark uh, Peachock. There's uh, Kate Flaherty. She does oh, yeah, a bola yeah. bola juggling act. And there, I just saw Mama Lou who does a strong woman act. Not juggling, but a very strong female performer. Yeah, well, see, of course, it seems like they've made up acts that are entertaining and even with talking in every other field. But somehow a solo that does it on ships or does it where you'd, you'd see them on the car. Oh, there's also Lindsay Benner is quite good, too. She worked the pier here in San Francisco for a while. Her, her finale was to stand on the, the shoulders of a couple of men and juggle three knives or three torches. Excellent. Yeah, but quite a good uh, entertainer, very good actress and, and comedian. Well, there's one in Germany. Maria Scheib, she calls herself Maria Gaukler-Tochter. The uh, Gaukler is like a jester juggler in an old tradition. And uh, so Gaukler doesn't quite translate from German, but Gaukler-Tochter, the daughter of the Gaukler, and now she's going to be a mom, so I think she's going to call herself Gaukler-Mutter. But Maria is very talented with guitar and singing and writing funny lyrics in German, and she can even write some funny lyrics in, Ger in English, which is astounding because she's German. And she does a unicycle striptease, doesn't get all the way nude or anything, but right. just this really cool thing from these big baggy clothes down to this kind of tight-fitting, sporty outfit underneath while on the unicycle. And she's really talented with five clubs and all that stuff. So if, they, if she ever tried for ships, she would get it. So there are people who do it, but I'd love to see it become more. And then, of course, the field would be larger for a guy like me who's still single 
who doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily choose to be single. This is what we'll do, John, to end the podcast. What we'll do is we'll put this out there to any female listeners or any <laughs> any jugglers who have a you know a female friends or sisters or relatives who will put up your picture and they'll see your long flowing hair and <laughs> and your your slim physique and, and you know they'll hear your personality. And hopefully right. not only this will be drop everything, it'll also be love connection. Okay, thanks. That's cool. I, I don't know it's going to work, but I'll, I'll say there's always a chance. You know, if it, more advertising, the better. I figured by now, if, if any of my pictures on Facebook looked good enough, somebody would already come up. I have all this networking, so I figured I might be destined to just get used to being uh, a juggling monk or a solo <laughs> I don't think so, John. I think your future is very bright. I see a, a wonderful relationship in your future. <laughs> I see the right woman finding you because you're a hell of a catch, my friend. A hell of a catch. Cheers. Well, I appreciate it. And also, the other thing is, before we go, I want to ask, do you guys still do shows as the Raspinis? Unfortunately, we do not. I think uh, I would still be up for it. But Barry, I think, also physically, like his role was harder than mine. Like his yeah. stunts, like the ping pong balls, the, ne- yeah. the head rolls, the balancing things he did. We're very neck related. Right, of course. And I and think he's, getting... his neck is not as, as flexible as the young Barry. Is there a way to keep that flexibility? Because even though I don't do ping pong balls, I balance stuff on my head and I do head rolls every show. Is that going to catch up to me? What do you think? I think it was more the desire. Like I think if he wanted to keep the neck flexibility, he has moved on to such great things in his own life and he's so excited about his, his new passions. And for him, I think the juggling and the career and the – it kind of ran its course. And when the industry changed and you know how every thing has a lifespan of its own, like every act, every, every person. And we've kind of hit a place where we kind of done everything we wanted to do, I guess. Nice job. I mean, how many people do you know that can say that? God, that's great. I'm congratulations. Because if you guys are feeling like you went through something that was fun and, and, and yeah. fulfilling and did quote everything we want to do, unquote. Wow. See, I don't think I ever knew exactly what I wanted to do. But like I say, I hope the hell that somehow this year they'll fill up my ship calendar because I still love that. And I do hope that opportunities or inspirations will come along. This podcast has been great because I really like connecting with you because you were one of my big inspirations and Barry was too. The, The trick that Barry did about juggling four clubs, set one onto the chin. And then reach up and set another one on the nose. The one from the chin falls into the juggle. And then reach up and put the next one on the forehead. I consider that the Barry trick. And anytime I get a chance to show that to someone, I do show it to them. I love that trick. I'm really proud of it. And I say, yeah, this is Barry Friedman. <laughs> you know, I don't even say Raspina because I'm scared. What if there's no more Raspinis? He's still Barry Friedman. So I'm going to give it him. Because <laughs> to me, if he didn't invent that, he sure did inspire me to learn it. You know, at the convention. Okay, one of my favorite moments in juggling has to be, and one of the ballsiest moments ever is uh, when we did the Carson for the second time. And he does the triple singles with torches into the balance out of the triple. Oi, oi, oi juggling on tv juggling in live so for me to be able to not have to do that but to rely on barry to do it and have him hit it yeah it's it, was, it was wonderful incredible. the, the least juggling the better for me if i could just be there with the tam with a symbol or just do some jokes i prefer that let him do the yeah, heavy loading heavy but, but you're a very i'm amazed by your danny mulligan tricks i don't think any of those look that easy i i think you have a lot of difficult things you do too maybe he was doing the quote heavy lifting in the two-man act but you're not exactly waltzing around with a tiny wimpy technique in your act that you do solo so it's you're both what's really cool is you've always been like you said in juggler's world you said a couple things you said you get on the ship you come back and you're out of the loop you also said you can't have a single bad show you got to be consistent 
And you also said you I think Barry said in that article, young guys get so hyped up on being jugglers that they forget to learn how to make a living at it. But one of the things he also said was he says, I see Tony Furco. How does this happen? He's doing five ping pong balls with no hands and uh, four ping pong balls while talking to his wife. And Barry says, meanwhile, I got to talk to God every night to get 15 mm-hmm. pops with three in the show. So all these things are lines that I never forgot from the Raspies. You guys are huge inspiration, and it was definitely an honor to be on your podcast. Well, John Nations, thank you so much. I wish you the best. We're going to find you a wonderful traveling companion. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully our, our paths will cross. If, if you don't find me that, let all the agents you, you know that uh, maybe one day my agents don't have room for me anymore and I'll need a new one to get me on some other some other ship gigs and then uh, maybe those will lead to a, a lady. There you go. Hey, continue great adventures. Keep traveling the world, bringing your, your act and your enjoyment to people. Love talking to you, John. Thank you so much for being on Drop Everything, John Nations. Yeah, take it easy. Let's talk some more when, whenever you get a chance. Thanks, John. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 57, my conversation with John Nations. Thank you, John, and good luck as you travel the world amusing folks with your comedy juggling antics. Let's thank our sponsors one more time, starting with the International Jugglers Association. You know where they are. They're at juggle.org. Find out about this great group of jugglers, their products, their festival, and so much more. Thank me by buying a new copy of my book called 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act. You can contact me at danjuggle at gmail.com. Go to PayPal, use that address for $14.95 and buy the book. Amazon.com, leave a nice review and a five-star rating. That would be great. Or come over to my house because I have some copies in my garage. Also, let's thank Zing Toys for producing the Zing Dama. They're available at Walmart or Amazon.com. If you want an original Ring Dama, the wooden version, go to ringdama.com. All right, go out there, enjoy this fine day wherever you are. And drop everything, except when you're juggling.